The following story broke the internet just two days ago. I am a mythologist. I have seen giants, and they are now among us. I am a mythologist. It was a profession passed down from generation to generation, and I've always been interested in it. The old tales my dad used to tell me about fairies, cyclops, and big giant wolves always had me on edge. There was something he never spoke about, however. That was giants. Whenever I brought up the giants, he would clearly change from cheerful to stone cold, even fearful at times. One night, my dad came home drunk. I could smell the whiskey on his breath from 10 feet away. He was clearly in a state of panic, as the only detail I remember vividly were his big eyes. They were almost black. When it was time for me to sleep, I asked him for some tales, and no matter how mad he was, he always told me something I had never heard of. I missed those times. He was telling me a story about an ancient fairy garden that produces dreams when I brought up giants. Without a single word, he switched out the lights and left my room, leaving me to soak in the eeriness of if he was mad or not. When dad left, I was around 16. He one day went on a journey to Ireland because they found evidence of something. I don't know exactly what it was, but his notes suggested it was something to do with angels. There were very detailed illustrations of them and how they looked, and it was completely different to what I could have expected an angel to look like. It had more than two legs. Wings were small, like a baby bird's, but the most striking details were the eyes. They had the same big black eyes like the night my father had when he was drunk. I felt uncomfortable looking at it. When I got out of college, I had a degree in mythology. I had a few friends who were interested, but most either became something else or a partner in the field, like archaeology. One night, while at home, I was doing some research when I got a call from one of these friends. I'll call him Troy. He was clearly frantic, as if he was in a hurry. And that's when he asked me for help. Apparently, on one of the digs, they had found evidence of something that needed to be identified. My first and most obvious question was, why would you need a mythologist for that? He avoided it and said they could fly me out tomorrow. This was in Afghanistan, but it was in a more remote or desolated area of it. Since this was the case, I wasn't too fearful of any potential threats. And after some time of thinking, I agreed. And I was flown out in time no less than when the sun had fully rose the next morning. When I stepped onto the dry, sandy landscape of the country, I was shocked. The sun was blazing so hot it felt like I would be reduced to ash. I felt uncomfortable, and I moved to the spot where I was meant to be picked up. When the pickup arrived, I hopped in, and after a few hours of treacherous heat and sandy roads, we finally arrived to a very large dig site. There were scientists, journalists, but most confusing of all, there were armed guards. As I shuffled over, Troy greeted me with a tight hug and gestured for me to follow him, so I did. We walked into one of the many research tents, and there were very old illustrations, books, and more. But the one thing that caught my eye was a bottle that was waxed shut, with a rolled up piece of paper inside. I looked at it and he caught my gaze and explained, yeah, we uh, found that at the site. We think it might be a codex or a dating. If we are right and able to figure out what it says, it could change quite a lot about the history of this place. All the things we wondered could now be proven. Then I asked the burning question, why do you need me then? A massive lump formed in his throat as he walked out, me trailing closely behind. When we arrived to the main attraction, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. In this big, rectangular-like hole stood a skeleton. This skeleton was no less than 12 feet tall and almost 5 feet wide. 
I almost thought this was a joke or an animal, till I saw the very clearly blue oxidized copper spear and massive iron brace in with the skeleton. Then flashed in my mind the memories of my father's avoidance to talk about the giants. As a mythologist, you don't actually think any of this is possible. It's mostly just cultural study. By the time I had looked at this thing long enough, it was very dark, around 11 p.m., so we all headed to bed. The only thing I remember thinking is, was this real? Have we found evidence of giants? And so I passed out in the pool of my own thoughts. When I awoke, I had heard lots of commotion, and most confusingly, the sounds of guns being loaded. I sprung out of bed rushing to see that the skeleton had disappeared, but even worse, so had Troy. He was absolutely nowhere to be seen. I heard people talking, then spotted a crowd up ahead, so I followed. When I stood to see what they saw, I was shocked. There were massive trails of clear drag marks, but also there were footprints, at least four feet in length. The drag marks led into a valley of mounds, and so we planned to follow them. Our main thought was that Troy had taken the body and planned to sell it. When I went to his tent, everything was clearly, frantically thrown around, as if he had scampered to get out of bed quickly. But also, the bottle with the message was gone. I caught up with the group, and as we followed the trails, I started to become anxious, fearful even. Something about this wasn't right. How could he have moved that massive skeleton out of that pit and not have made any noise? Nevertheless, the weight of it, the spear and the brace was also gone. How is any of this possible? When the trail started to shift, it went up a ramp-like slope into the top portions of these mounds. They were around 100 to 500 meters tall. When we followed them, we arrived at a cave, and without any hesitation, the group shuffled in. I stood there in shock, but before I could think, my legs did for me, and I moved in. The first thing I noticed was the smell. It was rancid, worse than death. But the second thing was the darkness. I had a torch with me, but before I lit it, I felt helpless. If I got lost in there without a torch, I would never make it out. I would be forced to die slowly, constricted by only the boundaries of these rocky walls. When I lit the room, I saw the group was a bit ahead, so I jogged to catch up. When I hit a loose rock and it bounced into the wall, making a loud echo, then we heard it. Loud, heavy footsteps came from right in front of the group. The first thought was a wild animal, and so a lot of us rushed out. When we made it, we heard yelling and screaming. Then the noise started, the muffle, till it all stopped. Among the eerie silence, we heard what sounded like something eating, a predator feeding on its prey. One of the many armed guards quickly loaded his rifle, and the sounds suddenly stopped again. The footsteps slow this time came towards us, and the guards immediately pulled their weapons up, waiting. Then slowly formed out of the darkness, a massive shape of a human. From even that, I could tell it was at least 15 feet, maybe more. Then it emerged. From that cave, a massive axe swung out, striking one of the guards in the body, sending him off the mountain. There were no screams. He was gone instantly. The enormous figure emerged, and what I saw will be engraved in my memory as if etched in stone. It stood tall, almost 20 feet. Its skin was a pale, stark gray, and its features were strict. It had black hair, deep eyes sunken into its head, far more than naturally should. Its nose was slightly cut off, and it had horrendous scars on its face, but its mouth is what I remembered the most. It had a grin with thousands of tiny razor-sharp teeth, and there were blood on them. It was primal, a supernatural being that should not have existed. Outlining his body were bones. He used rags to tie them onto him. It was wearing the skeleton of what we had extracted as if it was a trophy, but what still gives me nightmares today 
was what hung off its body. There were twin ropes with parts mounted on them like trophies. They were his friends. The guards opened fire on the beast as it let out a deep, guttural roar, almost like the screech of metal. I watched as it grabbed the closest person, one of the guards, and without any trouble, the beast squeezed. The guard turned to nothing. For that brief moment, it was distracted, so I ran beneath its feet as it dropped his lifeless body to the ground. I ran and ran till I found where it had been hiding. There was a small cavern, and there stood a bunch of dead grass, sticks, and the like. I didn't know how this thing got grass in the middle of Afghanistan, but I didn't care. As I scanned his lair with my torch, I spotted it. The bottle with the wax sealing it closed and the letter inside. It was easy to break, and I figured, in my last moments, I would read it. This is what it read. To those who happen to find this, I am dead. I am not the body of the monster that has been found. I am rather the man by the name of Lucas Hitchwood. What you have dug up is a giant, a massive beast that resides in all places, but is mostly considered fantasy. Lucas Hitchwood was my father's name. The note was smeared in ink and was clearly written in a hurry. I looked at the bottle and noticed something. Of course, it was an old whiskey bottle. Everything finally clicked. He never went to Ireland. He went here. He knew they existed. As I said this more, gunshots echoed and screams emanated from the pitch dark. My torch couldn't illuminate. In a hurry, I ran to a wall and saw something shiny. There was a watch, a silver watch, which I recognized. It was my father's. I saw bones scattered and I realized he had died here. I sobbed like a baby till the shots stopped. I thought it was coming back. Then I heard my name being called. I rushed out to see the beast had fallen dead. Its eyes lay open to reveal the same dark sunken voids I had seen just moments ago. That was the last I remembered. The black voids of that thing's eyes. Then I passed out. I woke in the hospital and was told I had suffered from intense stress which caused the fainting. As the nurse walked out, two men in suits walked in. I had heard of this, the men in black. What you saw that day is something that very few have ever seen. We have contacted who you work for and have managed to get you a sum of money in exchange for your sworn secrecy. A contract will be provided for this soon. I was paid $300,000 to be quiet. I was never to speak about the horrors I witnessed that day. Now, when I walk around the streets, I notice more black eyes staring at me. It's not long before I join my dad. The stress has been too much. I'm considering just giving up and leaving this world in peace. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Wow, fam. What a hell of a story. My girlfriend had stumbled upon it. It was posted just two days ago to the internet. It's probably going to be heard more after this. But you already know. You heard it here first. So, what do y'all think? Crazy stuff, right? His dad was a mythologist, told him all these crazy stories, but always avoided the giants. Left for a trip to Ireland, but he ended up in the same place his dad actually went. Crazy. What I find to be the most fascinating about these stories is they seem to be located or take place in the Middle East, Kandahar, Afghanistan area. And these things epitomize what the Bible called the fallen, the abominations, 
Regardless of this story's validity, whether it's true or not, I have no idea. But an awesome account, nevertheless. And it's something that we cannot write off. As soon as I heard it, I knew I had to share it with y'all. So I hope you enjoyed. Let me know what you guys think in the comments about this one. Wild. His dad left the bottle. Just awesome. Again, let me know what you think. Stay in love, stay in light, stay tuned. I am out. What this hunter saw while hunting wild boar is the stuff of nightmares. The following story is loosely based off true events. Joe was a hunter, and though he had been deer hunting and occasionally provided turkey for Thanksgiving, Joe mostly loved to hunt wild boar. For those that aren't familiar, wild boar are a serious problem in the United States. Not only do they tear up the land and eat almost anything, they birth at an extremely rapid rate, having as many as one to 12 piglets per birth in as little as four months. Currently in the United States, there's over 10 million feral pigs across the country. And when they say feral, they mean feral. These things are aggressive and they'll attack at a moment's notice. So it's really no surprise that the Department of Fish, Game and Wildlife in numerous states allow people to legally hunt them with almost zero restrictions. In most states, including Joe's, it's illegal to hunt animals using a thermal, except of course, wild boar and coyote. So Joe, having bought one within the last week, was excited to put it to the test. He recently had been scouting an area that he knew would be perfect for a night hunt. It was a very accessible spot that would allow him to get his truck into the woods with ease and his spots were easy to find so he could set up quickly and be overlooking the entire clearing. The night started out quiet with no movement at all where he had thought there would be a ton of action. So mostly, he just tinkered with the settings on his new scope. Being impatient, he had seen some deer, but it wasn't that time of year. Deer weren't in season, so he decided to pick up and move spots to a new one. This spot he had seen a couple weeks earlier, and with the move, it would give him a chance to cover some different area with his new scope. He had been scanning the woods for an entire hour when it finally dawned on him. There was virtually no animals whatsoever in this patch of woods. No birds chirping, no rabbits moving, no owls hooting. The deer he had watched earlier were now hundreds of yards away. Why was this spot so dead at night, but so alive during the day, he asked himself. He had set up around 10 p.m. It was now 2 a.m., and he hadn't seen a thing. So he started thinking about packing up, possibly even setting up a target to send a couple practice rounds downrange to make sure his new scope was functioning properly. The deer he had seen earlier were almost 400 yards off. He had just finished putting everything in his pack when suddenly, he heard a crunch in the direction that he had come from. Joe immediately drew his firearm to his shoulder and panned his scope in the direction of the noise. Now keep in mind, his scope is not night vision. It's actually a thermal. So at night it produces a black and white image of the landscape and any creatures that are moving through it. So upon scanning the area, he notices what he believes to be a small bear pushing its way through thick foliage. The bear looks to be about 200 yards off. He proceeded to adjust the range a little bit and zoom in to get a better look at the creature. Moments later, he's able to do some fine tuning and get a better look at what he saw. As he gazes through the high powered thermal, he suddenly jolts when he realizes that it was no bear. It was a man. Initially, he was so low and hunched over 
that Joe thought it was a young bear scavenging for food. Is that a game warden? Joe asked himself. It can't be. I would have seen the headlights coming in. Nobody has come up that two track. I surely would have seen them from where I was sitting, he thought to himself. If not the game warden, then who? A lost hiker? Where could he have walked from? I'm 30 miles away from anything and on public lands. These are the thoughts racing through Joe's head. He was just about to call out to the gentleman when he adjusted his sights again and noticed that the man was naked. What the? Baffled, he continues gazing through his scope. No shoes, no pants. He had virtually nothing on. Disturbed by the man's movements, they were quick and sudden, almost as if he was a squirrel or something. Very twitchy, grabbing at branches around him while sniffing and palming at a tree in front of him. Then he came to the realization, was that my tree? The tree that I had been leaning against earlier? Joe thought to himself. The thought terrified him. Can this man actually smell his scent? He stands there baffled, peering down his sight when the creature does something that sends chills down his spine and he still has nightmares about it to this day. Suddenly, the man squats, placing both hands on the ground in between his legs and stares straight up towards the sky, similar to a wolf mid-howl. Baffled, he can do nothing but sit there and watch. And that's when he heard it. Coming from that direction, a very desperate female voice cries out, Help! I'm lost! Please, help me! There was a long pause, but neither Joe nor the creature moved a muscle. A warmth of fear swept over him like he had never felt before. He gazed on, crosshairs fixed to the ground in front of the man. Joe has been hunting all of his life, and aiming his gun at another person went against everything he had been taught about firearms. Were they lost? He asked himself. Was this guy a hiker who got lost and went crazy out here? Why was his voice so feminine? Then again, the voice cries out. Help, please, I can't walk. And that's when Joe realized it was bullshit. His adrenaline began really flowing. Not only could this creature walk, when he first come crawling in on all fours, naked through the brush, it was no problem. That's a damn trap, Joe said to himself. No doubt about it, whatever this creature was, it was trying to lure him in. And not only that, it was doing so, pretending to be a damsel in distress. Luckily, the lack of activity beforehand allowed him to pack his things. He may have left a hat behind, maybe even a sitting pad, but at the time, he didn't give a shit. He took his eyes off the creature for just a split second while he put his pack on and buckled it in the front, quickly grabbing for his rifle afterwards. And to his horror, the creature was in the exact same position, but staring in his direction with what seemed to be a slight smile on its face. As he gazed through the thermal, it has the effect of making animals' eyes white. How the hell did they hear me put my gear on, Joe thought. It must have been almost 200 yards away. As he looked through the scope at the creature's glowing eyes, he decides to yell, Fuck off! Immediately upon doing this, the cryptid stood upright, and Joe realized just how tall and slender this thing was. He was easily six feet tall and grossly lean. He then began running in long strides in Joe's direction, but he only made it about 20 meters when he instinctively sent around sailing over its head into the brush behind him. The dude was freaky as hell, but he hadn't really threatened him up to that point. What would he tell the cops? He was unwilling and unready to shoot another man that day. After the blast, it stopped dead in its tracks and quickly hunched down on all fours. The next one will fuck you up, 
Go away! Joe had his sights set on center mass of the creature, his eyes just above the grass like a cat hunting its prey. Joe was trembling with fear. His voice cracked on the last warning. He was terrified. The standoff only lasted about a minute, but it seemed like an eternity. Then suddenly, he bolted to the tree line. With such speed, Joe could barely keep him in his sights. So much for not being able to walk, thought Joe. As it disappeared into the brush, Joe sent another round high in its direction. After racking another round, he attempts to load a fresh mag, but drops it. He doesn't even bother to look for it. He just wants to get the hell out of there. His truck wasn't far, so he began moving hastily towards it. He could hear the creature screeching in a weird sound. He couldn't tell if it was laughing or crying. He runs down the trail and arrives at his truck out of breath. He tosses his pack in the back seat and his rifle right next to him as he hightailed out of there. He'd never see the creature again. So I hope y'all enjoyed that story, kind of taking it back to my roots on that one. I love telling stories, also somewhat allegedly true encounters with cryptids. And that was a good one. So that's why I told it. I'm kind of going to go back to that. A friend suggested that maybe I should just to keep things kind of different and moving in the right direction. It has been kind of tricky to keep telling stories like that around Bigfoot, Wendigo, Skinwalkers with everything that's going on nowadays with aliens and all that stuff. So I saw an opportunity. Let me know what you think, if you enjoyed the story or not. Also, what do you think it was? Wendigo, Skinwalker, or Rake? Let me know in the comments what y'all think. Be watching. I'm going to go live soon. And I got a lot more posts on deck. Stay in the love, stay in the light. Be kind to others as always. Manifest greatness. And stay tuned. I am out. Was there a super advanced civilization inhabiting Earth as recent as just a couple hundred years ago that was taken out by a mud flood? Many people seem to think so, and the evidence has been right under our nose the entire time. Tartaria, originally pronounced Tataria without the R, is the name of an empire that was here before the Mongols and originated in Northern Asia. Eventually, it spanned the entire Northern Hemisphere. Great Tartaria was the largest empire of its time and would have still been the largest empire today. The people of Tartaria were up to 12 feet tall and the empire flourished due to in part of the civilization being a leader in advanced technologies, free energy, and architecture. But mainly in part because they were beings of love and light and their society consisted of a melting pot of all different races and ethnicities. It was a place where discrimination didn't exist. All were accepted, no matter what their background. You won't find any information about Tartaria in the history books, as it seems the powers that be don't want us knowing about this civilization of super advanced and technological people. Y'all already know what time it is.
Many today believe this is why they eradicated them with a great flood. This resulted in an entire civilization buried. The Tartarians, or the Tartars as some may call them, were an advanced civilization of giants. Some believed maybe even the descendants of Noah, and they made up the great Tartarian Empire. As I said, they were giants that stood 12 feet tall, and like civilizations before them, they were shorter than the previous one. Like our civilization today, they were shorter than the ones before them. They stood possibly 25 to 50 feet tall, and the ones before them could have been hundreds, and the ones before them, maybe even miles tall. It seems that after each great deluge, the civilization that follows is shorter in height. Civilizations in the current astrological age, the age of Pisces, are shorter in height than civilization that existed in the previous astrological age, the age of Aries, and will be taller than civilizations that will exist in the next astrological age, the age of Aquarius. Some believe that the Tartarians were Breatharians, a being who does not rely on the digestion and burning of calories from food or water, but rather receives energy straight from ether out of our atmosphere. Ether is thought to be the very fabric of our being, the fabric of the space-time continuum that would associate with electrons, the wind, the Holy Spirit, and the atmosphere, and the gases in the atmosphere such as oxygen, nitrogen, and hydrogen. Another interesting point, since the Tartarians quite possibly had an altered digestive system than the one we have, they had no need for toilets in their bathrooms. This could be one of the reasons why bathrooms in the recent past have been used quite extensively more as social gathering powder rooms to not only freshen oneself up, but to hear and spread local gossip. The Tartarians were also said to be masters of masonry, brickwork, and steampunk style technology. They had universally free energy and the most grand architecture you could ever lay eyes on. Their Roman Gothic style of architecture can still be found all over the world as water ducts, banks, water stations, churches, hospitals, and similar public and city work type buildings. Cathedrals, mosques, churches, and other buildings of worship were actually originally etheric power stations, water stations, and even sound resonating acoustic healing centers. It's said that buildings today that we use as places of worship were actually functioning hospitals during the reign of the Tartarian Empire. Rather than what we were taught by mainstream science, Tartarian buildings were actually more similar in function to pyramids and temples found across the world. Through their ingenious engineering, intricate architecture, and super advanced technology, the Tartarians transform Earth into a massive circuit board powered by the ether. Just like the ancients did with the pyramids and the temples many, many years ago. How they did this was the crosses on top of the buildings were used as etheric electrical antennas. This was connected to rebar, embedded throughout the building's entire structure. Even the streetlights that existed during the reign of the Tartarian Empire were tall electrical antennas. These streetlights harnessed the power of the ether, which caused the gases inside of the upper bulb to ionize and illuminate. According to historians, rather than glass, they believed that possibly these bulbs were made out of quartz crystal. These quartz crystal balls could have contained different substances such as mercury or radium, which reacted with the ether, or the bulbs contained nothing at all. And the quartz crystal itself is what reacted with the ether, 
And this is what I believe to be the case. Fireplaces were just as intricate as the house themselves. And different than what we do today with fireplaces, they weren't engineered to burn any wood. Chimneys weren't used to guide the smoke from the fireplace to the outside of the home. How it's believed to have worked is the rebar in the home was connected to the rooftop tower dome, which was possibly filled with substances such as radium, quartz crystal, or mercury, and the metal poles sticking out of the top and sides of the home. All of this metal was then connected to the metal backplate found inside the original Tartarian fireplaces and chimneys. Just like the crosses found on churches, cathedrals, and mosques, the metal poles sticking out of the top and sides of the buildings acted as etheric electrical antennas. These harnessed the power of the ether and focused that free energy into the chimney and out of the fireplace. There was also ductwork connected to the chimney that ran through the entire home. So they believed that the energy traveled through this ductwork and powered the entirety of the house. Similar to how spiders are able to actually grow and survive without food and water as long as they are touching their web, the Tartarians were able to grow and survive without food and water so long as they stayed inside of their etheric energized home. Along with this, the ionized air coupled with the rising and falling of hot and cold air currents created a pressurized electric vacuum inside of the chimney. During the winter, chimneys acted as electric vacuums, radiating trapped heat inside of the chimney out through the fireplace and the metal air ventilation duct connected to the inside of the chimney. And what's more is during the summer, the process would reverse and the fireplace and air ventilation ducts would suck heat into them. Then the air ducts connected to the inside of the chimney from the inside of the house and by way of the ionized air from the etheric electrically charged metal backplate inside of the chimney would force heat up the chimney and out of the house. So not only did they produce heat in the winter, it even produced AC in the summer, all completely free. See, the Tartarians were also one with nature. So they refused to cut down and clear cut forests and use wood to structure their buildings. If they used wood at all, it was very sparingly because they knew that it provided the oxygen needed to survive. This is why they were so much taller. It's said today that the trees are merely bushes compared to what they were thousands of years ago. The oxygen that was once provided on earth made the beings of earth much bigger, much stronger, and the like. The truth is what we're doing today to the rainforest and the trees is an absolute tragedy. Now to the mud flood reset. This great reset is what many attribute to the demise or downfall of the Tartarian Empire. What's baffling about the theory is that enthusiasts believe that it only happened as many as 200 to 400 years ago. Some even believe the mid to late 1800s. Buildings hundreds of years old located all across the Terra are known to be encased in a mud flow up to several stories high and in some cases even completely engulfing the buildings entirely in nothing but mud. You can find buildings that have an age of only a few hundred years and find them to be buried entirely in mud. The windows and doors of the buildings are quite often found to be at ground level and occasionally even found to be completely buried underneath the surface of the mud, 
that covers the entirety of the area. The vast majority of these buildings are said to be located in Russia and East Asia, as that's where the Great Tartarian Empire was mostly located and where it originated. But as I said, these buildings are scattered throughout the world, even in America. Here you see some construction being done on the Capitol building in Washington. Yes, you heard me right, the Capitol building. Notice here, you can see the stains of the mud that covered well over 20 feet of the base of the building. So the question people ask is, were these buildings already here when we got here? Were they built by an entirely different civilization? And if this is the case, what type of deluge happened that brought that much mud into their area? And what's more, the question I have that bothers me the most is if this was the case, then where are all the bodies? Where are all the skeletons and remnants of the civilization? They aren't being found. Were they saved by an ancient alien race? Were they taken off planet? Or did they maybe even go underground? Now with that, it is said that the government has found massive amounts of technology underground. Caverns with high-speed trains running through them. Trains that span the entirety of the earth. But that's a story for another day. Hope you enjoyed. Stay in the love, stay in the light, be kind to others, and stay tuned. I am out.